And I think I always dreamed that one day I would have those glamorous moments in a big city surrounded by people who adore me. And in this instance, maybe it was just one person who adored me um, and who I probably adored a little more than she did me. But um, (laughs) it really was just thrilling moment of feeling alive. Hello, my name is Kay Anderson and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. So one of the things that I really love about doing this show is obviously getting the chance to learn about different people's experiences and circumstances, but within that, there's often a really nice reminder of how nobody's journey is the same. Like there are so many ways to come out, there are all of these different ways to fall in love, and there are all of these different ways in which a space can be important to you. Like, for instance, some of my guests have only ever been to the space they talk about once, whereas others have gone there religiously over a period of years or even decades. And then there are some people who went at different periods of their lives. One such person is Morgan M. Page, the Canadian writer, artist, historian, and host of the trans history podcast, One From The Vaults. Morgan first went to Good Handies in Toronto as a fresh-faced 19-year-old, but then over the years had a few different periods where the space wove in and out of her life, each time offering something a little bit different. We caught up to talk about call center scams, conspiracy theories, and developing warm and fuzzy feelings for someone who is supposed to be just a friend. Let's get into it. Shortly after it opened, probably within weeks of it opening in 2006, when I was a young teen transsexual in Toronto, Canada. But I was actually living in Hamilton, Ontario, which is 45 minutes away. It's a steel city, equivalent to Manchester, if you want to think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And I originally went there because I had made friends online with a bunch of other trans girls. So hang on, just if it's 2006, yeah. is it time to talk about MySpace? Oh no, oh no. I was oh. too pretentious for MySpace. I was on live <laughs> journal um, because Ooh. I'm a writer. <laughs> Sharing all of your thoughts. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I love long form life casting online. And uh, in 2006, I made friends with all these other trans girls online. And I was super young. I was like 19 years old. Um, living on my own, kind of my life was a mess in lots of ways. And I had started transitioning several years earlier. 
And now it's just starting to make trans friends. And this girl, Becca, who I was totally obsessed with, invited me to go to Toronto with her to this new nightclub that had opened because it was like going to be the first trans venue. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, cool. I'll go to that. And we went. And I think I have to describe what this building is like because you have to go way down to like the ass end of Church Street, which is the gay village, but like past the point where it's the gay village, where it just starts being regular <laughs> Toronto again. Well, so how do you know? Because like there just stops being rainbows and unicorns. Yeah, and you just feel the need to like pull your coat up a little closer. <laughs> like, oh, I might get mugged down here. <laughs> I might get a little hate crimes. Like the more blocks you go down, the like visual cues of gayness slowly seep out. It's like, okay, you pass Steamworks, you pass the barn, which is like the gay western venue and then after that it's like all the joy leaves the world and you're back in like straight people land (laughs) so it's just on the other end of that and you get there and there's like a large office building or something to the right of it and to the left of it there is a large totally empty parking lot which looks like the sort of place that you would find a dead body, probably. Good to hear. And, you know, they film a lot of things in Toronto, so probably some (laughs) Law & Order show uh, did have dead bodies there at some point. Um, But anyway, then you have the building that it's in, which is three floors. The first floor is a restaurant. I never went in the restaurant, but it was owned by the same people. And then you go up this narrow flight of stairs that goes on forever. It's like very tall set of stairs because the first floor ceiling is really, really high. So you have this giant, completely black set of stairs. And then at the top, you open this like industrial door and you are in Good Handies, which is a like two and a half floor upstairs venue. And when you enter in, Sorry, I'm like having flashbacks. On your right (laughs) is a little booth where obviously they like take your ticket or whatever. And it kind of opens up. And on your left, there's a stage up above on the wall directly in front of you is a screen for projecting, I guess. And then there's a bar and you can go up a set of stairs to the second floor, which looks down over everything. And now when I got there with Becca and these other people, that screen was projecting a documentary about trans people, which is like a weird thing for a club night. Mm. Mm. (laughs) This is 2006, things were very different. And that documentary, like I didn't pay attention to it at first, but later as we moved about through the bar and I went up to the top floor, I remember standing on the top floor, looking at this screen with Becca and realizing that the movie they're playing features, it's just like a totally normal documentary, except that it has this one scene in the middle where this trans guy, Raven Caldera, who used to be a very well-known writer, is fisting his like trans mask boy. <laughs> and I'm just looking at this 19-year-old me and being like, huh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> Well, I guess this is nightlife. Yeah. (laughs) And um, we shut that place down that night. I mean, it wasn't crawling with people, I will say. And I did kind of think at the time, 
I don't know how long this venue is going to be open for because there aren't that many what, people here. You as a 19-year-old were that cynical. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm kind of mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be a fun interview then. Um, let's go. Let's go back. So oh, where do I want to go back first? Let's go back a little bit and then let's go back a little bit more. Okay. Going up those stairs the first time, I mean, to me, it sounds terrifying, right? Like, I'm new to nightlife. This is a place that I've been told about and I have to climb up this never-ending staircase and then go through a really heavy door. What was it like for you? What were you thinking? I don't think I was terrified so much as I was just really unsure what I was going to find there. Mm -hmm. This is a time where I think young people today would maybe struggle to fully grasp how little like open trans culture there was at the time. And I just want to just interrupt to say that's our first reference of young people today in today's episode. There will be more. Carry on. Yeah, I identify as a grandma um, at 35. But um yeah, I just fully had no idea what to expect. I was a little like, ooh, is this going to be a chaser bar? Like, is this going to be mm-hmm, a bar mm-hmm. that is meant for cis straight men to come and like ogle at trans women, mm-hmm. which is not what I was interested in. And mostly I think I was just really excited to hang out with my friend Becca, who I was only just getting to know at the time. Um, and while I am mostly a person who only dates men, uh, I was having ooh. a very particular experience that a lot of trans girls go through when we first start to meet other trans people where we have like a sisterly affection and I had a big girl crush. Ah. Well yeah that was going to be my next question because I made a note when you said you were slightly obsessed with Becca Mm -hmm. and I want to know all about it. Yeah I mean she was and is an amazing person uh, and we have had a very complex sisterly relationship over the past however many how long has it been 2017 16 yeah yeah. however many years but anyway she was kind of everything I wanted to be at the time like she was older than me she was like 26 and I was 19 and she lived in Toronto which seemed really exciting Mm -hmm. and she had all these friends and she was queer and she was part of the queer community in a way that I wasn't and just seemed really like smart, so sharp, so smart. So there was this kind of like be you, fuck you dynamic where I was like, I don't know if like Ah. the issue here is that I want to be you or I want to have sex with you, but either way I want to be around you a lot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is one of the first times we hung out, I think, maybe like the second time. So I was very starstruck and I was very like, who is this glamorous person? (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) And how did she respond to that adulation? Oh, I think she loved it. Um, (laughs) I mean, we had our moments, let's say, but (laughs) in a good way. (laughs) You know, like um, many, many a time we made out. um, And in fact, that evening... There are some really funny pictures of the two of us because even though I lived like I would have to take a night bus to get back to where I lived, I ended up staying out all night with her mm-hmm. just because I couldn't really tear myself away from her. And so there's these really funny photos that the owner of the club took when literally everybody else had left the club. And it was just the two of us dancing to, of all things, 
And I remember the song for some reason, but it was Wig in a Box from Hedwig that they had put on. <laughs> <laughs> and we're dressed atrociously because it's 2006. But the two of us are doing this like almost choreographed, like big dance routine in the middle of the dance floor, completely alone. <laughs> Aww. Which was very funny and very cute. That's kind of like the best time to be on the dance floor, right? Like when all your inhibitions have gone and then all the people have gone as well. Yeah, I just wish that I had known how to dress myself or do my hair back then uh, <laughs> because the photos are tragic. But it is a very special memory to me. I think it was one of the first times... Not to be like overly cliched, but I do think it's one of the first times where I ever really felt free, where I ever really felt like mm. I'm in my space and I'm with people that I care about and I feel, I don't know, thrilled at being alive in this moment. Mm. It was the sort of moment that I think I'd spent a lot of time dreaming about as a teenager. I had a very um, tumultuous <laughs> um period of growing up, as you may imagine, like I transitioned really, really young. And even before that, I was involved in lots of things I shouldn't have been involved in. I was like a street involved youth, right? So I was doing loads of drugs and I, you know, did a bunch of sex work as an underage person, which I shouldn't have been doing, but I did. And I was always just straining to get away from this kind of awful city I lived in typical story. Mm -hmm. And I think I always dreamed that one day I would have those glamorous moments in a big city surrounded by people who adore me. And in this instance, maybe it was just one person who adored me um, and who I probably adored a little more than she did me. But um, <laughs> it really was just thrilling moment of feeling alive. This is one of those questions that I shouldn't put on you because it's such a big, broad question but I'm going to anyway. What was present in that space that allowed you to feel free? Hmm. I mean, I don't think it's anything too special. I think just the fact that it was like a club that was dedicated to us, first of all. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. second of all, especially in that final moment where we're dancing around to Wig in a Box, the woman who was DJing was our friend. And then the only other people in the club then the owners were like me and this girl that I was friends with. And it was literally just our space in that moment. Even though, mm -hmm. you know, the club was about to shut down, it was the last song of the night. And it was probably three in the morning at that point. Just having those people and knowing that that was actually meant to be us. Especially back then, because, you know, at the time, and this is, you know, maybe a concept not everybody understands, but I was stealth, like... I lived my life as a woman and nobody knew I was trans. Like, I didn't have very many people in my daily life who had any idea I was trans. I was dating guys who didn't know I was trans, etc. So I was completely unused to being in a space that not only was I out, but felt very celebratory mm. rather than kind of like demeaning. You've just said that people wouldn't be used to the term stealth. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't think it's used as much anymore, stealth. Oh, okay. And certainly okay. people who aren't trans often don't know about the word stealth. Okay. These days, most trans people are just out. But, mm. you know, maybe in certain situations or at work, they might not bring it up very often, but they're not going to deny it if it comes up. But me, back in the day, and this is very common back in the day, 
Like we didn't tell anyone we was trans or we were trans. <laughs> and if people questioned us, we had a whole backstory in our back pocket, you know, like uh, I could talk about being yeah. in Girl Scouts. I had loads of details. Like how many badges did you collect in Girl Scouts? <laughs> I was really good with the sewing and the knot work. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's a very different mentality Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where, you know, there were times where I literally would forget that I was trans. Once I had a boyfriend, a cis boyfriend who did know I was trans. And there was one day I was, we were living together and I was brushing my teeth and I looked in the mirror and I was like, oh man, I haven't had a period in a long time. I wonder what that means. And then I was like, oh, wait, (laughs) she's gone too deep. (laughs) I'm living the fantasy too much. A really long time, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it it was so different. And I don't see as many people living that way anymore because we don't Mm -hmm. have to. Like, there's Mm -hmm. more acceptance today than there was. I mean, relatively speaking, or at least people are more out. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's quite different. And so can we get more of an idea of you at 19 then? Is that okay if I ask questions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we know you loved to overshare on LiveJournal, and we know that you lived in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is one of those naive questions that I'm going to ask, but why did you not live in Toronto? Well... I had grown up for the most part in Hamilton and I was living with my mom and she died suddenly when I was 18. And then in the months that followed or in the weeks that followed, I had to do so much completely on my own because I wasn't in touch with my father or other parts of my family. So I had to, you know, deal with the house, deal with her estate, et cetera, et cetera. I had a little help from a friend's mother, thankfully. But basically in the weeks that followed, I had to get a place for myself really quickly. So I got Mm -hmm. this cheap apartment that I paid an absurdly low amount of money for. Now I think on it, like, God, I wish I still paid that little to (laughs) rent. Uh, It was a two bedroom flat that I rented for myself for like a couple hundred bucks. Like it was so little. I mean, it was in a bad neighborhood, but whatever. So I moved into this little place and then I did not know how to get my life together. Like I was really in a bad way. I was a high school dropout. I had only recently gotten out of an active addiction because before Mm -hmm. I like started medically transitioning, I was really into drugs, really, really into drugs in a bad way. And then I started transitioning and I kind of let that go. And then my mother dies and then I'm completely on my own. I had no idea how to take care of myself at 18 Mm-hmm. To the point where I didn't even get my internet hooked up for six months because I like, I just didn't have the executive function for it. And I, you know, I am a deep internet person. I'm extremely <laughs> online. It's a problem, I realize. But... I love how that's your example, though. My life was so messed up. I didn't have the internet for six months. <laughs> it just seems so wild to me now because I wouldn't go a day without it now. But like back then, I just couldn't figure out how to do basic life stuff. I couldn't figure mm-hmm. out how to feed myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like spending all my money going, getting fast food every day because I couldn't figure out how to like cook. I tried mm-hmm. to put a pot to boil so I could make some like 
pasta from a box and I set the water on fire and I don't know how that happened. <laughs> you know, this is kind of where I was at. Like I was really struggling at the time to take care of myself in lots of ways. And then I finally got my internet connected, made friends with a bunch of these girls online. And yeah, and I also like, I didn't have a job. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do because I was a high school dropout. Mm -hmm. And there were no models at the time for living your life as a trans woman back then. It felt like other than Jerry Springer or something, like these trashy TV talk mm -hmm. shows where they bring mm -hmm. on trans women and then humiliate them. Um, back then, there were kind of three things you could do as a trans woman. One is you could be a sex worker, obviously. Mm -hmm. Two, you could be a hairdresser or a makeup artist or something like that. Or three, you could work in tech. And <laughs> uh, although I had done a little bit of coding when I was a child, the idea of properly dedicating myself to that filled me with boredom and dread. <laughs> um, but I really, I just had no picture of the life that I was going to lead. So I was totally aimless at the time. And I think the night at Good Handies and the other kind of nights that surrounded it as I sort of chased after Becca in Toronto confirmed for me that I needed to move to Toronto. Uh, and especially because like my life in Hamilton was intense because I kept dating these straight men who didn't know I was trans. And this is before I had lower surgery as well. So I was like doing a very intricate dance to make sure that nobody found out. That is stressful. Stressful. And in retrospect, I wish I hadn't done it. Anyway, I did eventually get one boyfriend who knew I was trans, but I was 18 and he was 34. And like, Eek. it's a little uh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> Plus he was like a weird conspiracy theorist. Very strange Ooh, individual. Like what? <laughs> Oh, like aliens. He used to be on this online forum, which probably still exists, called like Godly Productions or something, or I don't know, something like that. But it was like really weird. And it was every conspiracy theory. Like at one point he tried to convince me that women couldn't be in the army because chemical gases released by other armies would enter their vagina and kill them. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, that sounds plausible. Yeah. <laughs> Or like he would he would come up with things like um, the Canadian military doesn't allow their soldiers to actually eat meat. They're all eating fake vegan meat so that their latrines can't be smelled by dogs or something. It doesn't make any but sense. Like, why would you even get angry about that? Just like, I don't oh, know. Okay. <laughs> so this is another in my day moment. But like, do you remember a time when people who were into conspiracy theories were just like nice oddballs that like you just giggled at and now they kind of like run the world. Yeah, mm. this was very that. Like he seemed totally harmless and I'm sure he is. I mean, hopefully he hasn't become an uh, anti-vaxxer or something today, although well, you know, now that I think I mean, about it, he yeah, probably exactly, has. exactly, exactly. Hi, if you're listening, by the way. <laughs> yeah, hi, Paul. Um, <laughs> but back in the day, like, this is the generation that grew up on the X-Files, yeah, you know? Yeah. And it just seemed like this fun, weird thing to talk about Bigfoot yeah. every now and then, or the Chupacabra or something, and how it's all a government conspiracy and Area 51. It didn't seem like a big deal. The stakes were really low. And so that wasn't as much of a red flag as it is in retrospect. <laughs> So anyway, the long thing is my life was a mess. Okay. <laughs> and I was still living in Hamilton 
and I couldn't figure out what to do with myself. Mm -hmm. Time for a quick ad break. So, as you know, this show is all about spaces. And one of the things that I am particularly interested in exploring is what are the ingredients to a successful space? Is it about the host? Is it about the people who happen to be there? Is it about the ground rules? Or is it a magical combination of all of the above plus a little bit more? Well, luckily, I have been given the opportunity to find out. I have recently partnered with Spaces, the new group chat app for queer communities. On Spaces, users can set up their own space within the app, and the one that I have set up is called Lost Queer Spaces, where I will be sharing a little more insight from every episode of this show, but I will also be throwing in some vintage nightclub posters, throwback songs, and a whole heap of embarrassing photos from sweaty nights out clubbing. If you want to know more, all you need to do is find Spaces in the App Store, download it, and set up your profile. And don't worry if you're on the go at the moment, I will make sure to include more details as well as a link in the show notes for this episode. So let's get back to the show, but I hope to see you very, very soon on Spaces. So then let's not let's not focus on Hamilton then, because... Mm-hmm. Life is a mess, not interesting. Let's talk more about Good Handies and other nights that you had there. Yeah, so I think the thing to fully understand about Good Handies are the people who ran it. It was run by this pair of business partners, Todd Klink and Mandy Goodhandy. Todd Klink, I kind of knew about already because he had been on an early Canadian reality TV show called Kink, which was on like the gay adjacent channel showcase. And you could watch it at like one in the morning, which I did a lot. That's how I learned so much about gay cinema as well, because they would play these gay movies at like two, three in the morning. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, Kink was a show that I was obsessed with in the early 2000s because it was this reality show that focused each season on a different Canadian city. And it would follow the lives of people in the like kink and leather scenes. And then some random trans people. So like you'd have all these people really involved in kink and then a couple of trans people who are just living their lives and are like super normie. So I was completely obsessed. And like weirdly, I mean, Canada's a small place. It's geographically large, but half Mm -hmm. the population of the UK. So Mm -hmm. like inevitably... As I came to be quite, let's say, established within Canada's queer community, I got to meet a lot of the people who had been on the show. Todd was the first one, though. And (laughs) Todd on the show had been a professional dominant and rent boy. And he's this kind of like beefy, kind of bruiser looking guy. Um, He's actually very sweet in real life, but like really looks like he could fuck you up. Anyway, he was one of the owners. And he was also a writer. Um, He had released like a novel and some other stuff. And he had a column in like one of the local gay papers and everything. Mm. Uh, And then the other owner is this much older, although I hope she won't kill me for saying that, but much older um, (laughs) trans woman named Mandy Goodhandy. 
who uh, was a porn star who was famous for transsexual spanking videos where she would just spank <sighs> all these men. And that's the good handy. You get it? Good hand good for the spanking. Ah, yes, okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so she is this fascinating creature. She is like pump full of silicone all over, blonde, giant boobs, very, very sweet. And she spends most of her time like being an entertainer. So kind of inhabiting that space that some trans women inhabit where we're not necessarily actually working as drag queens, but we work in that milieu. Mm -hmm. And she was very that. And the two of them opened this venue to be a pansexual playground. And so they had these like trans nights, like the one that I went to, but they also had other stuff going on. They had nights for gay men. They had swingers nights. They had leather nights, etc. So... Yeah, I think understanding them is really important to get what the vibe of the club was. But my interactions with Good Handies went on for many years, for basically 10 years. And over those years, it changed a lot. So originally, it had just been this kind of dance place. But very quickly, they brought in the trans strip club nights. So they put in a stripper pole. And then it became this venue for trans sex workers where the girls would come and then they would just like do a couple pole shows in the middle that no one would pay any attention to. Um, (laughs) I mean, it was never packed on those nights. On the like gay men nights, it was like packed, packed. But on the trans nights, it was never super packed. And and so is this the organization trying to pivot to attract that cis male audience that you were talking about before? Is that why they had the stripper night? Yeah, well, and I also think that, you know, both Mandy and Todd were very involved in the sex industry and in various ways, they also owned together some porn websites and production companies and things like that. And so they were just trying to integrate their Mm -hmm. whole business into it because also like... They then created a website that was like Canadian Tea Girls, where they would get the girls who dance in the club to do solo porn clips for their online business. Um, So it was just like all feeding into each other. And I think it was a very, if we build it, they will come kind of moment Mm -hmm. where they thought that they could create, and certainly for a little while they did, but create like a club culture for trans women and the men who love them, let's say. And I think just economically, that made more sense to them than their original effort, which had been to try to make this like just trans event that was for all members of the trans community, whatever, because trans men weren't going to go to a space like that, really. Um, At least not at that time. Probably now they would. But back then, no. And Why, um, Why do you say that? Just there's definitely been a tonal shift in trans men's relationship to sex work, to hooking up with guys. Like it's way more open for trans men to be able to hook up with guys now. Mm -hmm. Back then it was like not super well-known or popular in lots of ways and often looked down on sometimes online. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the communities were really divided because like trans women existed in this world with the chasers and sex work and things like this. And we're, it's a very classed thing, right? Like we were working class Mm -hmm. uh, or like sub working class a lot of the time, a lot of us living in poverty, a lot of us homeless. And then you had trans men who, not to say that a lot of them didn't live in poverty, but 
at least the way the community was organized at that time was very academic. It was very aligned to the university. Trans men tended to hang out more in lesbian spaces then mm-hmm. uh, at that time in Toronto. And so there was like, there was just very little overlap in terms of people knowing each other, trusting each other, wanting to hang out together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it wasn't the most inviting atmosphere for them, I would say. Anyway, so the club kind of pivots to this trans sex work model. And within a couple of years, I guess they noticed that like the girls would meet up with essentially John's like clients in Mm -hmm. the venue, but then they had nowhere to go. Like they would either end up in that creepy parking lot that I told you about, or they would go back to someone's flat, which in Canada we call an apartment. And (laughs) (laughs) thank you for translating. I wouldn't have known otherwise. (laughs) I'm the Canadian whisperer. Um, But anyway, so they would go back to somebody's apartment and then who knows what would happen, right? Like it wouldn't be the most safe thing. So they came Mm. up with this idea that they could create on the second floor these diamond booths, which were really like shoddily put up with some plywood, basically painted black, so it would all match in. But they were these little wooden boxes where you could take your clients and um, do sex work in there or private dances. And so Good Handies then became a brothel. And this was at a time where in Canada, brothels were highly policed. Mm -hmm. It was keeping up, it still is technically keeping a common body house. Just like in the UK, like sex work is technically legal in Canada. It is legal to do it, but there's lots of restrictions around it, including if you do it more than once in the same physical location, or there's more than one person working in the same location, then it becomes a brothel Uh, or a body house. And so they were kind of like pushing the envelope a bit in terms of what was acceptable. Because of course, gay men's clubs in Toronto all had back rooms. Like that is a long established thing. Mm -hmm. But those back rooms are not explicitly for the purpose of doing sex work. And this very much was. Like you had to pay to get into these little rooms and it was well known that sex work was what was going on here. And I don't think they ever ran into too much trouble with that wildly, but it was definitely pushing the envelope. And so this actually takes me to the second point of my interactions with Good Handies. So in 2006, I go for the first time, then I go away, I have surgery And after I have surgery in 2007, I moved to Toronto and I start my life there. And I'm still like kind of stealth, but I have some trans friends and I'm starting to like slowly put out my feelers in the queer community and start to understand that being stealth forever is maybe not something I really want to do. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not actually ashamed of being trans. I love being trans. Um, And at the same time, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life because As I said, my life was a mess and I had moved to Toronto to take a job at a call center that turned out to be a completely illegal scam that got shut down within like a week of my working there, basically. I think it was like two or three weeks of my working there. They had us call people on the phone Uh and tell them that they had won vacations to the Bahamas and then get there they had to put down a security deposit of $600 for this free vacation. 
Anyway, so after a few weeks of that, it got shut down by the government. Um, I did feel very guilty about it. But did you actually convince anyone in that time? I always wonder about these. Here's the thing is I'm very convincing and I was actually (laughs) really good at it. (laughs) I was promoted immediately because I was so good at doing it. I mean, it didn't all add up, but I was like, it's a job, so it must be legit. And so I was like... praising me. Yeah, everyone thought I was doing great. Um, And people were so happy when I talked to them on the phone. So I only started putting it together after a week or two. And then I realized that it was all a scam and I started to feel bad about it. And so um, whenever I would get someone who was over the age of 55 or under the age of 25, I'd just be like, hang up immediately. Like, please hang up now. (laughs) Even though the calls are monitored. Then I came in to work one day and it literally, it was like the police were shutting them down and whatever. So that's how I landed in Toronto. And then I worked in all these like crappy, like cafe jobs that I could get, like anything I could get Mm-mm. at all. And um, the, the next part of the story, which does connect with Good Handies, is that in 2008, I got a call or a text from Becca, the girl who took Ooh, me to the club originally, yes. who yeah. I was still friends with, very good friends, but no longer smoochy friends. And <laughs> she was like, hey, there's a protest going on tonight at Homewood and Maitland, are you going to be there? And I was like, oh, I don't want to go out. I just worked all day. I'm a working adult now. I'm tired. But I was like, whatever. Okay, I'll go because Becca told me to go there. And Homewood and Maitland turned out to be this intersection where street-based trans sex workers worked and they were being attacked by the residents in the neighborhood who were trying to drive them out. The Uh, residents were mostly cis gay men mm -hmm. uh, who were homeowners because it was just like a street over from the gay village. uh, And it was so much drama. The whole thing erupted. There were so many people there. And somehow, even though I like very begrudgingly showed up that night, I ended up getting really involved in the ongoing political situation that unfolded that summer where me, Becca, and this uh, sex worker, cis woman, Wendy Babcock, who's now passed away, the three of us organized nightly counter protests against these like not in my backyard guys. So we would be out there from 11 p.m. till 2 a.m. physically intervening, like putting our bodies in between these men who were trying to beat up the sex workers working on the street. Wow. And like literally physically trying to hurt them. Yeah. And there were all these news stories about it, too. It was like a really big blow up. And the girls who worked there were the same girls who would go work at Good Handies. Mm -hmm. Um, on the nights when it was the strip club. So it was like they were there every night that it wasn't a strip club. And this is also a very famous intersection because in the 90s, two trans women were murdered on that street. And a cis woman was murdered a few streets away by the same guy. And it's actually like that moment, which I've done an episode of my podcast on. Oh, plug, plug. Yeah. (laughs) Check out One from the Vaults, my (laughs) podcast, Trans History. But anyway, that was the catalyst for trans organizing in Canada in the 90s. Mm. So it's like this famous thing. I got heavily involved. And Wendy, she had a very similar backstory to me where she had also been a teen sex worker. She was also a high school dropout. You know, she had loads of issues, but she had really turned her life around through going back to college and then going to law school eventually. 
And I was like, whoa, what the hell? Like, I couldn't even imagine. Because at the time, I was like, well, I'm a high school job. I'm just never going to be able to do anything. Mm. And she literally taught me how to get my GED, like my high school equivalency. So I went and did that. And then I applied to the same college program, community college program she went to, which was this incredible feminist, very a bit second wave, but like really interesting feminist program that taught me basically everything I know. And through that program, this is a very long way of getting back to good handies, but I promise we're getting there. Um, But through that program, you had to do student placements with social Mm -hmm. work agencies. And I got a student placement working at the LGBT Community Center, specifically within the trans youth program that they ran there. So I started working there and they actually hired me out into a full-time position running all of the trans programs at that center, one of which was trans sex worker outreach. And the trans sex worker outreach was like two nights a week, I think. Um, Me and this girl, Julissa, who's so amazing, uh, we would go out from 11 p.m. till 2 a.m., on to Homewood and Maitland uh, and into Good Handies to mm. see how the girls were, give people condoms, like let them know about any resources they might need, like anything like that, just like checking in on people. Yeah. And that is what took me back to Good Handies. So what's that like? Do you remember the first time you did it? And this is me projecting, but being so like new to it and not really knowing what you're talking about, but then also being like, hey, I'm here to help. Just don't ask me anything. I mean, even before I got to that, though, I had to um, I had to have a special meeting with Todd during the daytime alone in the club to like get permission to come in to do outreach. (laughs) And he was actually very nice. But that is the only moment where I walked into Good Handies and had like trepidation because I was like, this feels like a mob movie a little bit. Like, come meet with the boss during the day in the club alone. (laughs) Anyway, he actually was super nice. And there's nothing weirder than a club during the day, right? (laughs) I know it's like an eerie, like liminal space during the day. Um, And so I went in in the afternoon, I met with him and he just basically wanted to be like, you're welcome to do outreach. Just don't be disruptive or weird, Mm. basically. Mm. And I was like, that's not going to be a problem. Don't carry a binder and and a pen. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. And so anyway... It was really interesting when I started doing that work because I knew a lot of the girls from the struggle at Homewood Maitland, you know, they knew who I was. So it wasn't like I had to break the ice, but um, it was very different, especially when going to Good Handies to be in that space where I had had a lot of really formative moments leading Mm -hmm. up to them as a partier. And to now be like, oh, I'm not allowed to drink. I'm not allowed to participate in any way. And yet also have the Johns come for me. Like, because the Johns wanted to hook up with me because they didn't realize I was an Uh, outreach worker. There was just like, she's some girl. This is when your pen and your notepad would have come in handy, you see. (gasps) Yeah, exactly. I mean, putting a large, like, Ziploc bag of condoms onto the table, (laughs) unfortunately did not um, deter the men. It it leads them on, I think, you know. Like, look how many you'll need. (laughs) Yeah, and so, I mean, there were a lot of wild nights. Um, Definitely some of the girls, did not like that the clients were trying to come on to me and that caused some tension sometimes as like competition I had to keep reassuring them like I'm not going home with them like it's not going to happen I'm just here to help you you know I will politely talk to someone because I'm not going to be weird but you know Mm -hmm. it's not about that but yeah I, I will say 
you know, I does protest too much a little bit about the men because I did go home with a soldier one time accidentally. Um, <gasps> what is it? You were on shift? Yeah. I can say that now because it's been many years. <laughs> no one's going to come for you. It's fine, yes. Hot soldier, carry yeah, on. Yeah, there was this hot soldier, like kind of really muscly, and he would not take no for an answer. He, which is like bad but he had tried <laughs> many times with me before and he would not pay any attention to the other girls he wanted nothing to do with them he was completely focused on me I don't understand why because at the time I had cut all my hair off and I had like just like a short little bit of hair and like a I don't know just a short haircut are you saying something about short haircuts not being sexy is that what you're saying I no they are <laughs> sexy but it's like I was giving this real androgynous look. And the thing about good handies is like the chasers who go there, they want these girls like to kind of look fam. like how I look now. Yeah. 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 High femme, like really pumped, like big breast implants, whatever. And there I am basically flat chested, short hair and not interested. And this guy's completely obsessed with me. And so he had tried it on a few weeks in a row. And every time I was like, no, 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 no. And then finally one night, I think I was feeling bad about something, I don't know, but I was just like, all right, fine. <laughs> and so I took the guy home and we had like a very mid-range time together uh, before I threw him back out on the street. So out of 10, what would you give him? Uh, like a six. Oh, that's all you know? right. That's it wasn't mean... the worst time, but... It... But I guess with the lead up, you know, with all of that pursuing, you're going to want it to be amazing, right? Otherwise, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Well, the other reason that it's um, memorable is that it was the last time I had a drink. It was the very last drink I ever had. And I haven't drank since. It's been like almost 10 years, I guess, but uh-huh. I haven't drank since. Um, well, because it was so mid-range. Like, are you used to just <laughs> exceptional sex? And this was like, nah, man. I mean, no. <laughs> I, I had realized that I had an issue. Like, when I was a teenager, I was like full-blown addicted to some drugs. And then I got off of that. And then when I moved to Toronto, I was like, oh, I can just, I could be a normal adult now. I can party with everybody else. I can drink. Mm-mm. And then that quickly turned back into drinking a lot, making a lot of... Uh making an ass of myself basically and then also doing loads of drugs and it had gotten really weird and intense uh over the previous year like a lot was going on in my life my dad died and like I got assaulted by a couple of guys and um just all this stuff was going on and I was having these bad relationship drama um because I had basically sworn off cis men and decided to only date trans men but then I was dating some not very nice trans men who treated me really poorly at the time. And so I was just like, I was going through it. And then anyway, on this night, this fateful night, I had already decided to quit drinking, but then this guy offered me a drink and I was mm-hmm. like, okay, fine. I'm not paying for it. One last drink. <laughs> and then I had this drink and I took this guy home and had a very middling experience with him. And after that, I was like, okay, now she's done. She's done. So that w- it was fine. It was fine. But um... <laughs> so it wasn't because of him then. No, it, no. It's just the circumstances around. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so that was another kind of highlight of my <laughs> life with Good Handies. And so, yeah, Good Handies just kind of like kept weaving into my life in these really interesting ways. Um, and so, do you remember, like, do you remember the last time you were ever there? 
It was probably one of my outreach shifts, to be honest, because at the end of 2013, I had this boyfriend who I was completely in love with. We were like going to get engaged that December. We had kind of like hinted around it. And then uh, like two weeks before we were supposed to go to his family's house, he died very suddenly. And it was super awful and traumatizing. Like he died in front of me also, which was like really intense. Um, But anyway... So he died totally unexpectedly. And then I decided I was going to leave Toronto, that I couldn't handle Toronto anymore. Toronto is like a great city in lots of ways, but it is also a city that is really petty and vindictive and like doesn't treat trans women very well often. And I had just gotten sick of it. And after Jack died, I was like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to get the hell out of the city. So I made a plan. To come to Tariff Island. No, not yet. (laughs) You're jumping ahead. I made a plan that I was going to move to Montreal into the French-speaking part of Canada because I was like, I'm an artist, and that's where artists go to live because it's really cheap and artistic, and everyone's French, and then I'll learn French, and it'll be great, and I'll be like Celine Dion's best friend. (laughs) I thought, you know, I hadn't completed my college program because I had been hired out of it, so I was like, I'm going to go and get a degree in social work and I'll go to Montreal to do it because I love visiting Montreal. I had friends there, I'll have a great time. Spoiler alert, I did not have a good time in Montreal. (laughs) (laughs) But did you learn French? Did you get anything from it? Uh, No, (laughs) no, I didn't learn French at all because if they detect that you don't have a Quebecois accent, they'll just switch to English. I can basically, like I can ask for a bag at the the shops, je voudrais un sac, but that's about it. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, so I made this decision that I was gonna leave and I left the quitting of my job to kind of the very last minute because I didn't want people to know that I was going either. Oh, drama queen, yeah. I Yeah, I'm a little bit of a drama queen. I didn't <laughs> tell any of my friends that I was moving. Like, nobody knew that I was going to move. And then I handed in my notice. I did give them, like, six weeks, but I had been there for four years at that point, so... And it was a hard position to, like, replace. Mm. But anyway, I was sick of my job. I was sick of the city. I gave them my notice. And then one of the final days that I worked there, I went to Good Handies, and it was completely dead. Things were really changing for the like trans sex work world at the time. Like the street-based sex work pretty much disappeared because people could do things online now mm-hmm. and everybody had a smartphone. So everybody was just doing it, you know, through Craigslist or whatever. Similarly, the nightclub was getting a lot less people. Good Hades was definitely in the decline at that time. And to be frank, I am shocked that they managed to keep it open much longer than that. But, um, It was dead. There was, like, no one there. There was, like, maybe two girls or whatever. And that was pretty much it. The day after I left my job, the day after my final day, I moved to Montreal. Again, without telling anyone. Uh, Until I I didn't even, like, nobody knew. And then I moved to Montreal. And then afterwards I told people. I was like, oh, by the way, I moved to Montreal. Oh, you just, like, updated your Facebook profile, didn't you? I did. Um, I think I made a post about it, but I was just like, by the way, guys, I moved to Montreal today. Oh, that is so mid-tens. Mid-tens? Oh, It really is. <laughs> and so if we go into full cheesy mode, if you're, if you're like down for that, mm-hmm. what do you think Good Handies taught you about yourself? Hmm. I think... I learned at Good Handies 
that I could be all the parts of myself at the same time without compartmentalizing them. Mm. I learned that I could have friends and community that really saw me and that was meant for me and that I didn't need to go begging for scraps from the straight world. I also learned (laughs) that there is a lot of difficult politics that you're moving through in any space like this where even as inclusive as it seems, it could be very exclusive at times, you know, like there was a time when none of the indigenous trans women could get into good handies. They were all banned as individuals, not as a block, but like because their lives were more marginalized and were Mm -hmm. more, um, were less stable than other people's lives at that time, they weren't allowed in. Uh, And it was a whole issue and we had to like, try to negotiate at one point. So as as accepting and amazing as it could be, it was also like super problematic sometimes. Hmm. Okay. And then my final question. If you could give some advice to that 19-year-old that was bundling up the stairs with a massive crush on the person that they were there with, what would you say? I would say all of your instincts are right. Start listening to them. When people seem like they're bad people, don't go with them places. (laughs) And the things that you are drawn to, community, to art, to the better side of nightlife for sure, those are the things that are going to save you. You know? I think 19-year-old me had not figured out that yet and it would take many years to really work it out but she was on the right track by then I think that night when she first stumbled up those steps I think she was stumbling into something that was gonna definitively make her the person she would eventually be which is me Do you have any memories of good handies or clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, please get in touch. I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories of queer clubbing. Go to lostspacespodcast.com and find the section Share a Lost Space and tell me all about what it is you got up to. Bonus points are always awarded for embarrassing photos. You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Find out more about Morgan by visiting her website. I'm going to spell this because I'm not sure how to pronounce it. O-D-O-F-E-M-I.com. O-D-E-F, O-D-O-F-E-M-I? What am I missing? I don't really understand. Anyway, if you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on your podcast platform, or just told people who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen to. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces.